welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Well, we have um, come to the end of our series. We'll be entering another series next week. How many of you have been blessed by our series through the rebrand? Amen. Well, um, today we have a panel. I'm going to bring my panelists up here today, and we are going to, y'all come on up, and we're going to go ahead and have a, a key and clear uh, discussion on uh, just us reflecting on the series and looking through problems, solutions, and ultimately moving towards application. Somebody say application. Application. As we think about this idea of problems and solutions and applications, one of the things that um, is very, very important to us as we talk about the church and talk about its role and talk about rebranding doesn't mean we redefine. Uh, Rebranding just points to the fact that we need to represent. Somebody say represent. And so the first time um, Jesus uses this word in the context of a new community, of this new community uh, called the church. Um, He uses it in Matthew 16, 18. And in Matthew 16, 18, and he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's interesting that, you know, many people think Peter is the rock. Um, Many people would say Jesus is the rock. And, of course, Jesus is the rock. But here, I don't know if that's what it's talking about. Um, Because right here, Jesus was in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was not Jewish territory, Hebrew or Israelite territory. It was foreign territory. So when he said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, He was talking about the church not being, because interestingly enough, you would think Jesus would build his church in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. You think he would build it on the Temple Mound in the old city of Jerusalem where uh, the, the, the church of the Holy Sepulchre sits now. You thought he would build it there. But, but, but Jesus wasn't interesting in building a monument. He was interested in building an instrument. And in being an instrument, he knew that he wanted to put us not in safe territory, but in unsafe territory. In other words, in order to be an ambassador automatically means you're, you're living where you're not from. And so Caesarea Philippi was, the place where he was standing was on a rock that was utilized as a point of worship for another deity. And Jesus said, I don't want to build my church in the safe place. I want to build my church in the midst of where the war is happening. And so I don't know if you've ever been through anything in your life personally and corporately, but particularly personally, things that happen in your life as a believer aren't merely, listen, because just things are happening. You are a target for a reason. When you trust Jesus as Savior, you become Eve's seed. And when you become Eve's seed, there was a promise that there would be enmity between the devil's seed and her seed. Why is there such a problem with you being Eve's seed? You're Eve's, you're, the problem with it is you're a disciple. Satan doesn't care about anything in your life but you not being a disciple. Why he does not want you to look like Jesus. So he will do anything to rupture and interrupt and break and destroy the witness of the church. So when we talk about rebranding, rebranding is a form of spiritual warfare. (laughs) Rebranding is a form of saying, no, we're not going to let ourselves be redefined uh, 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 and we're not going to allow ourselves to be silent, but we're going to walk in a ferocious commitment to Jesus Christ. So this series was really just so we could have went for another year in that series. But, 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 but I wanted to pick out some key things that I think was systemic for us to work through. So in your life, when you deal with stuff, 
that is frustrating and hurting you and causing you suffering. Uh, sometimes the warfare you're dealing with is because the enemy's trying to discourage you from looking like Jesus. And if you only see your pain and not his person, you won't be in hot pursuit of him. And so, and so, and so even corporately as a church, that's the same. So we're going to dig in today. So we have with us Dr. Tiffany Gill. We have uh, Sister Sarah Lowney. We have Dr. Sarita Lyons. We have uh, Kevin Lockett. And we have uh, Pastor Curtis Dunlap. Won't you get him a hand? So as we um, dig in today, just give some quick reflections on the series. What would you say are some quick reflections that you all had um, just going through the series? They did the same thing the first service, like they ain't heard this. <laughs> some things that stood out, like we said in the first service. Amen. <laughs> To, to be fair, Pastor, that wasn't exactly the same question you asked. How long, how long have you so, been uh, me and you know not me? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Tiffany Gill went first last time. I'm, no, I'm just, I'm playing. I'm playing. I mean, no, no, no. Okay, I, I, Pastor Kurt, <laughs> called no, out like that. <laughs> no, I, I got, I, I think what, one of the, one of the things, or or at least when we, when we um. When we talk about this series, one of, one of the things that reminded me of was I, I think it's a good reflection for uh, one of our core values, which is cultural relevance uh, and, and what that means. And so it, it reminds me of uh, Paul in Acts chapter 17, where he where it talks about how, as was his customs, he would go into uh, the, the synagogue and he would debate with the Jews. But he, but the way he would do it was from the Hebrew scriptures. He would talk. He would use language that they were familiar with. He would. Um, he would uh, he would appeal to uh, Hebrew culture, and so what he did was built an argument from what they were familiar with in the Hebrew scriptures to show them how the Messiah needed to come, suffer, die, and then point to Jesus. But he doesn't use that same methodology when he's before the Areopagus in Athens. Instead, he actually starts with creation and then builds his arguments and quotes their poets. And so he has an, he has a different approach for how he appeals. Uh, to answering the questions that the culture he's in front of is asking. And so when I think about uh, the rebrand, I think for us it's, it's, it's really important for us to make sure as the church that we're answering or we're communicating who Christ and the church is based on the questions that are being asked of the culture today. Uh, for instance, the questions that are being asked in the culture today are not the same questions that were being asked 20 years ago. And so one of the dangers is if we continue to do church the same way, uh, decade after decade after decade, then we end up answering questions that nobody's no longer asking, which leads them to seeing the church as no longer being relevant. I'll jump in since I was summoned. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things, well, the thing that really has blown me away about this series is both how it's been paradigm shifting, but also really practical, right? It's gotten us to think very differently about ourselves and how we give and how we approach work and discipleship and all of that, doing that introspective work. Um, it's also about equipping us to engage in culture, as Pastor Kurt said. But I also want to make sure we don't miss just how much of that is about us representing brand Jesus properly, right? right. Making sure that we are embodying it in the way that we work, in the way that we give, in the way that we live, in the way that we disciple. Um, and so I think that going back through them, and I encourage all of us to go back through those messages, is that it really helps to shape our mind as kingdom believers, but also gives us practical ways to live it out in the culture. I think it also helps us um, in this series to not build a Jesus of our own liking, which is a false idol, and which we tend to do because we want to pick and choose the most comfortable parts of, of, of Christianity, but we don't want to dig into the hard parts where we're being called into accountability, where we're called to walk right, where we're called to die to self. So I think it's important that we realize in this rebranding it's really a representing who Jesus is and who and how we are to bear his image and what we are being presented amen 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 that's great that's great so why is rebranding in um rebranding in the church even necessary like wait why would we even do this series like like in light of 
all that we went through and all we're even talking about now, things that we're bringing up, why is it even necessary? Um, I'll jump in. So I was saying in the last service that I'm a big movie buff, and when I was thinking about rebranding and why it's so critical, is I thought about my favorite movie, Coming to America. And so if you remember in the movie, uh, Lisa McDowell's father is talking about his, his restaurant, and he was like, there's McDonald's, and then there's McDowell's. You know, they have the golden arches, I have the golden arc. We both have, you know, two beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese. He's like, but, you know, they have sesames on their bun, and we do not. And so, but the interesting thing is I think that's a great picture for what's happening with the church and the world is that they are dangerously similar but not the same. And so when we think about why it is so important to rebrand, it is because the world and oftentimes confused Christians are selling an artificial, we're selling a McDowell version of Christianity. And, and people, if you are not discerning, if you are biblically illiterate, if you have not been properly discipled, if you're not in community, you will not have the ability to distinguish truth from error. You will not have the ability to test the spirits to see whether they are from God or not. And so I think the world's brand of Christianity, which is why we need to rebrand, is postulating a version of Christianity that is laced with something that makes the falsehood go down easy. And what it's laced with is something that appeals and appeases to carnality so that we can begin to believe that you can be a Christian and it means no transformation of the life. And so two ways that the enemy often does this is he wants us to believe either God is not good, therefore cannot be trusted, or that God is not holy, therefore I have no standard by which to root my life. And either way, what happens is if you're confused, the church ends up looking like a farce, like we're the lie, or we look like we're frail, like we're weak. And we have this religion that we ourselves do not honor as authoritative for our life and living. Just to piggyback off of that, I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that those misconceptions um, are monopolized by the world, and it's in the church. Um, when I feel like when I feel like having a headache, and I read comments on pe on things that people have posted on social media, um, one of the things that stands out to me is all of those misconceptions that Dr. Sarita talked about are being articulated and defended by people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. And so one of the reasons why rebranding is so important is because we can't be good brand ambassadors if we don't even know the brand that we're representing. And we've got to start in-house. We, we have done a poor job of understanding our faith, of understanding who Jesus is, of understanding what the church is, and until we get that right, we can't have a hope to represent Christ well to the world. Amen. So we, it's kind of been touched on so far. So what would you say are some of the cultural influences that kind of impact and shape the way Christianity is branded and viewed in the world? What are some key cultural uh, means and issues and influences that impact how Christianity is viewed in the world? I think um, a big influence is um, in the Western world, um, the American dream. And the American dream is that um, it's the promise of health, wealth, and prosperity, right? So the message is if I work really hard, if I do the right thing, if I do what I'm supposed to do, then all these things can come to me. And what happens is we take this message and we apply it to the gospel. And that's how we get the prosperity gospel. But the problem with that is it's a very me-centric theology. And that's problematic because it focuses then on how God can serve me versus um, how I can serve God and bring about his good pleasure. And not only is it problematic in how we are then viewed um, as me-centric, but it also sets us up for disappointment. Because what happens is, what happens when, as a believer, um, my health fails? What happens when I lose my job? What happens when the bottom falls out? Then we then begin to look like, well, this Christianity thing doesn't work. 
or we then believe that we did something wrong when in actuality we invested our belief in a false religion. So I think that's why it's really important that we are clear on what's influencing us and what is the biblical um, teaching and, dr and drive that is view pushing that viewpoint. And to follow up with what Sarah was saying about making sure that we know what we believe, um, you know, they always talk about the analogy that when you're, they're training people how to um, see counterfeit bills, you don't look at counterfeits, you look at the real thing, so that when you see a counterfeit, you can recognize it because it's so far from the real thing. And I think we all know, that this is not earth shattering, that in, you know, media and social media and television and film are discipling us um, and is something that we have to constantly war against um, in terms of understanding the truth. And I, I think that to add to what Dr. Sarita was saying, how um, oftentimes wh why we need to rebrand is because Christianity can look like a farce or look frail. I think one thing we have to be really careful about is making sure that Christians and Christianity doesn't look foolish. Um, and I think we perpetuate, we both have the world doing it, right? I mean, we, can, we are hard pressed to think about a movie or a film or a television show that accurately portrays Christians, right? Anytime there's a Christian scandal, there's gonna be a documentary about it. There's gonna be a podcast series about it, right? That the good news is being overshadowed by trying to put out these other narratives, right? We have to think about, we have the good news. Why aren't we hearing it more? And I think that we have to be careful even for ourselves and how we're entertained. Like the whole thing on these websites and on Instagram and all these places where church looks foolish, where Christian looks foolish. And yeah, we all may laugh and chuckle and think it's cute, but think about just that perpetuation of that same image, that church is just foolish, therefore cannot be taken seriously, therefore Christians should not be taken seriously. So I want us to guard against that, even in what we laugh at, to think about how is that lined up with what the image is of Christ in the world. To follow up with that for, for you, um, Dr. Gill, being in higher education, how, how do you, um, you've been in higher education for decades, and so what, what would, I didn't mean nothing by that. <laughs> Some of you know what you're talking about, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> but um, what, from your perspective, how does academia contribute to that? Absolutely, and it has been decades. I was kidding my students that I started college in 1992 and I never left. So I have spent more of my life in college than anywhere else. And what's really striking is that we as believers need to take the space of higher education so much more seriously than we take it. Because not only do we go to colleges, even if you don't go to college, the teachers that you had from K through 12 all went to universities. And so I always tell people, if you wanna know where culture is headed, go to a university campus, because it's where, that's where we're shaping the minds that will shape the minds of the future. I mean, it's literally, so many things that have, I think, taken Christians off guard about culture, about the way that we think, have been at universities for years. And so I think it's important for us to claim that space, to understand that as a site to be reckoned with. I think it's important that believers do what we are often encouraged here to do, which is to learn and to understand our word. I think part of why Christians often get dismissed at places like universities is that we can't stand up to the so-called truths that are being taught to us, right? That it's unintellectual, that we only see our faith as something we experience, but not something that we have studied, not something we have learned. And so I think that it's important for us, whether we're students at universities, whether we live in a city with tons of universities, to really think about these spaces as places where God is, is trying to fight for our souls, but where the enemy is running rampant, trying to distort us. And so thinking even about the fact that most universities started as seminaries. Harvard was a seminary, Yale was a seminary, and how far we have come from that space, because I think as Christians, we just think, okay, college is something you go to to get a job. That is the space where so many ideas about our culture are being shaped, so many books are being written, and so it's important that we not forget that space and our struggle to rebrand. Um, Dr. Sarita, again, from your perspective as a woman in ministry, how do you feel like um, that same ideology of how church is being branded has been affected by feminism, womanism, and what you've experienced, and some of the stuff we've processed about when you've come from different places? 
Yeah, sure. Um, as I've said before, I do believe kind of the push and the influence of feminism and womanism is more alive in the church than people may realize. And a lot of people, which is why I don't like to talk about it as the feminist movement, because the feminist movement in its original form is something very redeemable and great. If you're fighting for freedom and abolition, if you're fighting for the right to vote, if you're fighting for equal pay and breaking glass ceilings and barriers that should not be put on women as a result of sexism in the country, then feminism in that form was great. But feminism has become something extremely godless and anti-Christ. Um, and I often talk about the idea of, you know, people trying to overcorrect real oppression by pivoting away from the scripture. And so there are real things that we have to address in terms of, you know, rape culture and sexism and misogyny and all those sorts and the abuse of women in various forms and unequal pay. Those are real things that the church actually should be the leading voice on. And when the church, because either we were complicit in some of those things, and or silent about it, we allow movements and ideologies to come in and begin to whisper in the ears of women that taught women that real freedom is apart from God, that God cannot be trusted, that God doesn't really love you, and that the church and the Bible are something where you cannot find life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I really do want to encourage all women, and some of the things I see is just this idea where we have this you know, suspicion hermeneutic where, we're, where a lot of times women, because of injury and real trauma in life, are approaching the text suspiciously, as if God is someone that is anti-woman, pro-man, that women, we misinterpret scriptures about women being silent in the church, when clearly that is not what Paul meant. If you look at all of the New Testament, um, we misinterpret what it means to have, be submissive and all those sorts of things. So we need to rebrand womanhood and how Jesus dealt with women and what God has said about women without eliminating scripture. Um, and one of the, I think, fallacies of it is there are a lot of people who are self-calling. And so what I mean by self-calling is, you know, we, 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 we believe that because we have a gift or because we have um, a calling, then we shape that according to our own wants and desires, and then we put a God stamp on it. And we, we come outside of the scripture and say, well, God said to me, as if he had a private vision and dream for you that would contradict his word. And God's word remains the same today and forevermore. And so I think that if we just got back in the word and realized that God is loving, even the hard passages of scripture, if we came to it with the faith that God is good and that he has a good plan for both men and women. And even if I don't understand this hard passage, I need the Holy Spirit and community to help me interpret it rightly. It isn't that God is wrong, it's that I don't get it. And there are many things that we just need to get about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be on mission, what our calling is, and let the word of God shape it instead of us project on God our own visions and selfish ambitions and things like that. And there is actually real freedom in that. And I often say, you know, whether you choose to call yourself a feminist or not is up to you. But I would hate for a feminist movement or humans to get the credit for something that is inherent in the gospel. You want to be free? Jesus is the liberator. You, you want to be unleashed for purpose? God is the one who gives you your purpose. And so I don't call myself a feminist. I call myself a biblicist. I am a Christian, and I'm trying to live my life according to the word of God, and there is nothing more freedom freeing than a woman walking in her calling that is under the authority and the actual unleashing of God as seen in scripture. Amen. What was, so there, would, would we all agree, how about show of hands in the room? How many believe that there are a lot of misconceptions about the church out there? By show of hands, right? Right, um, you know, I mean, even it, it, from the church's inception, immediately, the first thing they called us was drunk. <laughs> On the day of Pentecost, soon as the church was born, they drunks, you know. And um, so, I mean, and, I mean, if you go through the New Testament, it's always a perception, right? So w there are two perceptions, though, in the world, right? There's the world's perception of the church and the church's perception of itself. What would you say, uh, one, each one of y'all, we'll, we'll start with Pastor Kurt. 
what, what is one major misconception of the church, outside the church, and inside the church? Um, so I, I, think, I think outside of the church, and, and I'll, I'll speak specifically to our context, is I think, I think it's a question we've been addressing but has still had a very uh, uh, large impact on our community is that Christianity is the white man's religion. Uh, and, and I think, you know, historically when you, when you have a group of people that have centralized um, whiteness and made it into Christianity or, or equated it with Christianity in what they were doing, Manifest Destiny, the Crusades, like God has divinely told us to do these things, uh, slavery. Uh, and so now, for, fast forward present day, um, there's a lot of pushback against that centralized whiteness as a group of people who are superior or greater than. But because whiteness has been so tied to Christianity over the years, that pushback of whiteness includes the pushback of the church and a rejection of the church. And so, you know, I, I think externally for a lot of people who make that argument, the ironic thing is um, that for people who would say Christianity is the white man's religion, they don't realize that they've been far more influenced by white perception uh, than the church actually ever has been, right? And so, uh, and then internally, um, what would what, you, what'd you say again? <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the misconceptions of the church of itself? <laughs> uh, misconceptions of the church about it has itself. of itself, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, come back to me. All right. So, hello, can you hear me? Something wrong with that mic. That mic don't like me. That's all right. We talk about it after service. Um, so, externally, I would say there's a perception that the church is role and purpose for existing is to simply do good works in the community and encourage people to be good moral people. And so what you see is, the, the implications of that is one, um, they don't expect, I, I have conversa I've had conversations with people like, it's almost like they don't expect us to like pay our light bill. They don't expect us to like turn the heat on in the winter. Like the only thing that we should be doing is feeding homeless people and doing programs in schools, which are good things and are things that we do, but that's not our purpose for existing. Um, they think that we're just supposed to encourage people to be good moral people. And so um, they expect us and judge us based off of how good is our works-based theology when it's not even what we believe. Um, and so I think that misunderstanding of the purpose of the church from the outside looking in has caused a lot of criticism because we're being judged against a rubric that we're not actually attempting to live up to. Um, internally, I think a lot of people feel that the church is supposed to be therapeutic. Um, the church is supposed to make me feel good. The church is supposed to tell me what I want to hear and kind of soothe all of my hurts and my pains. And, and I, was, I was with a student in Wendy's getting ready, this is years ago, getting ready to go to a church something. And we were talking to somebody in line and he was like, oh, where are y'all going? And we said, we're going to church. And he's like, what church do you go to? We we're talking to him and he said, you know, what's the most important thing when you go to church? And we looked at each other and said something at the same time. I said the preaching, he said the music. Because that's our expectation is that I'm gonna walk in the door feeling down, they're gonna sing a bunch of songs, they're gonna shout me happy, and I'm gonna leave on cloud nine because that's what church, I'm going there to receive therapy. And we do leave here feeling better than what we came, but that's not why church exists. That's not our purpose. And when that's our expectation and that's how we evaluate the church, that's how you, you see people hopping from church to church and people disgruntled and angry because what they are expecting of the church is not what the church is, God has called the church to be. It's interesting, that's very good, Kev. It's interesting, um, you know, do, and I'm not, this is a rhetorical question, do you believe we really know what, a, what makes a church a church? You know, like all of us like, 
what makes a church, like this is the definition of a church. Um, and so um, when you hear Jesus make the statement about the church, he has something fundamentally different in mind than our needs being met. They included it, but when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The first thing he's talking about is mission to represent him in the world. And, but a lot of times the average Christian never thinks of mission in the world as the reason why I'm a Christian. Like, that's why you're a Christian. Not, I mean, of course, we know, and this is eternal life that you know God and his only son who he sent, right? That's the definition of eternal life. That's not the definition of a church, right? So I think that's what we, what we need to talk about. And in light of that, right, because I, I think we, we I want to move to another question, then move to solutions. Um, in light of that, why is it hard for Christians to agree on a definition of what a church is? Like, why is that, like, hard? You know, I've, I can't tell you how many times I heard, that that's what the church's supposed to do, you know? And it was kind of like, oh, how do you know that, though? Like, <laughs> how do you know that? And I, I do think, particularly, you know, having done ministry in an urban context and a suburban context, there are two different expectations of church. Like, when you're in an urban context, you're here to help. Not preach the gospel, help. It, it, the gospel here is help me, please. <laughs> right? Um, in the suburbs, it's provide an environment for my family. You know, that's their gospel, right? And so we have to say, like, those aren't two bad things. The question is, how we define it. So why do you think, I'll just, I'll, I'll, you know, anybody can answer that. Why do you think that, that it's difficult to come up with a clear definition of church that's really a unified ideology among all believers? I mean, I think it just fundamentally comes down to the fact that the church is both a divine creation of God that is comprised of people in the process of being sanctified, right? So I think about in James where it talks about like, why are there quarrels among you? Why are there strife among you? And it's all about the selfishness and pride that we can often put our own selfish desires and needs in front of the mission that God has really called us to do. That it's that, especially in a Western context, right? So. In both of those examples you use, both of the suburban context and the urban context, it's about people wanting to get their highest need, what they believe their highest needs are met. Um, and so I think that when we start with ourselves, we're gonna end up in a place that God never intended us to be because the mission of the church is so much bigger. So I think it really is about making sure that we come to church empty of ourselves and making sure that we focus first and foremost on God, his mission, and his kingdom, um, and not so much on what we feel our felt needs are. Um, and, and so that's why I think there's just strife, is that we all are coming, even if we won't articulate it many times, with our own desires being met because that is the kind of Western context in which we live, and we're taught that the most important ideal is self-realization of, of our own needs. Yeah, and so it, it, that's, that's real good. Um, because one of the things we don't want to exclude is mission does involve meeting needs, but those needs are hooks to Jesus, right? So, so that's why Jesus would go on the scene and he would heal and do the, meet these different needs. But then if you didn't get him, he's mad. Like when he, like when he fed the 5,000, he was trying to get to him being the bread of life, not just feed them because they were hungry, right? So that's why when he started talking about, oh, they said, then he started talking about eat my flesh, drink my blood, you don't have no part for me. I mean, people started scattering like roaches in the early morning in a hood kitchen. You hear me? You know, and so, and so, and so because, because people like their needs getting met, but the church dissipates when Jesus comes up as the main thing, right? And so we got to change from that. So in light of that, getting to the solution side, how do we now... Uh, um, what, what are some, and let's, let's keep this succinct because I really want us to focus here even more. What, 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 what is your like brand ambassador passage? Like this reminds me, this verse here reminds me of the fundamental uh, nature and purpose of what it means to represent Jesus Christ. I'll start. So one of mine, it seems kind of obvious, but it's 2 Corinthians 5. 18 to 20, it says, all this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And so that part in the scripture where it's literally saying we are ambassadors of Christ and that God is making his appeal to the entire world through us, to me is just a very weighty call that God has entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation, which is ultimately the gospel, God reconciling man back to himself, and that when we have encounters with individuals, when we are at work, when we are in our various spheres of influence, when we're in our community, that how we speak, how we act, how we love, how we treat people, is in some way God using us as an instrument to come through and make an appeal about the gospel, about salvation, but it is through us. To me, that's a very weighty responsibility that every encounter, it's a reminder that every encounter that I have, am I somehow um, manipulating and or obscuring God's appeal to humanity? Um, For me, um, it would be Philippians 3 and 20. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Sarah. (laughs) 3 and 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So for me, it's a reminder that um, we are in the world, but not of the world. And ultimately, um, our destination, our home, is is in heaven. So we're not to be so comfortable here that like we think that this is it. But as a brand ambassador, as a representative, as of a person who has the ministry of reconciliation, it is my job also to help others get that citizenship. So how are we doing that? We are sharing the gospel. We are being a, a representation of what it looks like to be in the image of Christ. That's what's up. Go ahead, go ahead Pastor Kurt. Uh, so, so for me, it's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where Paul writes, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so, so it kind of, for me, is it's a helpful reminder uh, that one, I have a past uh, that made me unworthy of God's kingdom. Uh, but two, it, it reminds me that um, in his kingdom, it's okay that I have a past when I've been redeemed. Because uh, he, says, he says, and some of you used to be like this, or, or like you mentioned in the first gathering, and such were some of you. Um, which, which lets us know, man, like that, that even though that's how I used to be identified, uh-huh. even though that's uh, how I used to be characterized, um, I, I don't have to be like that anymore because he says, that's one of those but God passages, but, but God, but you were washed, you were sanctified, uh, you were justified. And so, so he's given us a new identity, uh, which, which sets upon us the standard uh, by which we must now live moving forward. Like who I used to be is no longer who I am like now today, just like the tadpole or the frog can no longer go back to being a tadpole ever again, the the butterfly can no longer go back to being a caterpillar ever again. As a Christian, we've been transformed in a way that should um, that should uh, uh, change our lives in every way moving forward. And so for me, this passage helps me to be reminded of the responsibility that I have to live, not just say that I used to be something, but to actually live a changed life. That's good. That's good. That's good. So where's the line? So let's get to the solution. Where's the line? So we, we, we agree that the church should be rebranded, correct? Um, in, in other words, represented properly based on God's creation of her. But where's the line? What, what's the, how, do you, how do you make sure we don't cross the line of inappropriately um, 
what we call contextualizing or being culturally relevant. So, so, so in other words, we're supposed that you know this ancient truth, this vintage truth, should be presented in contemporary form. So that means you, 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 the, the gift stays the same, but the rapper can change just as long as the rapper doesn't get in the way of the gift being unwrapped. So, so, so um, what, what's the line? So uh, how do we balance appropriate and necessary rebranding with not simply seeking to appease culture? So I think we have to first identify what our uh, non-negotiables are. Um, I, 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 I'm a millennial who grew up in church, so Romans 116 is burnt into my head, those numbers 116. Um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Um, I think sometimes we make the mistake of going culture first and then going Bible, and we've gotta first understand our faith and who we are and what we believe and then say, how do I go out into the culture and make this relevant and accessible to people? When we get the order mixed up, then we find ourselves compromising in ways that we shouldn't have because we didn't make that decision on the front end. That's good. Um, I, there's, a, there's a quote that I'll paraphrase by Rick Warren, where he talks about that we live in a culture where the misconception is in order to um, love someone, you have to agree with them or, um, or like or believe everything that they do. And that's not true because in actuality, um, you don't have to compromise your convictions to love someone. And that's what a lot of the culture wants you to do. So really, how do we combat that is in reality, speak truth to love. And that's where Ephesians 4 and 15 says, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. And so what, what I like about this and the point of rebranding is, the point of rebranding is guiding us into proper Christ formation. And what's more loving than pointing someone to Christ, pointing them to the way and how to look like Christ. So I think that's why we need to speak truth in love. That's good. That's good. Anyone else? You know, it's interesting. Paul um, in 1 Corinthians 9 talks about, you know, for those under the law, I became as one under the law. And then he says to the Jew, I became as a Jew. But then he says those without law, <laughs> he says, I, I become as one not under law, though I am myself am not under the law, but under the law of Christ. Right. And so what you see in him doing that is he's saying there are limitations to this. So that means um, in order to be relevant, you know, we don't have to have like somebody had a Beyonce church, you know, you know, no, I'm not trying to be funny. They had a Beyonce, I'm the church of the Beyonce, you know, stuff like that. Like we, like sometimes there's a thin line, like sometimes you can look silly, the church can look like it's trying really hard. And then on the other side, there are ways that we need to know that, this is a, this is a key thing. We have to know culture's love language. Okay, but we also have to know how to communicate in their love language without offending God's purpose, but appropriately loving them how God wants them to be loved. And so, and so that's very, very important as the church does it. And I think, and I hope that as we deal with the idea of rebranding it, you feel a, a, a sense of personal responsibility that it's not on the church service or just something in general, but it's on each one of us to take deep responsibility for what is my role in functionally taking hold of life? And what, but what's also, what, what, what is it like for me in my everyday life to take hold of what, 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 what are people's main perceptions of Christianity that they're affected by that I can be an answer to in basically uh, applicational and simple ways. So in light of that, right, um, what are some things that we can start doing? What are some things that we can start doing as a church to start rebranding? Uh, just shoot out some staccato things, anything that you would say that we can do to rebrand. One thing I was thinking about, and I think we did it a couple years, where sort of listening tours, like I think about when politicians are trying to figure out an issue, they, they listen to people. I think that we can do a better job of listening, whether when we're engaging folks, asking questions first 
before, we know the answer, right? Like we, we already have it, but you kind of need to know what the questions are. And so just thinking about in our own sphere of influence, I think that that's really the place where individually we start. There are things we can do collectively, but in our own sphere of influence, just start really asking people questions to see where they are, asking people what they think about Christianity, what they've heard about Christianity, because we can't make assumptions about where people have been. Some of the people who I've encountered who have seemed so hardened to the gospel and to anything about Christ, I then found out they had come from a Christian background and they have Christian parents and so they knew more. So I think that asking the questions right where we are in the spheres of influence is a place for us to start and making sure that we're actually listening um, before we start giving the answers. That's good. Anybody else? Yeah, I, I, think, I think we have to um, practice a better Christian ethic around sex and money um, because our witness in the world um, says that we don't practice what we preach and, and, and I think some of the greatest hindrances to people coming to the faith and trusting the church have less to do with theology and more to do with what they've seen from us in those two particular areas. Yeah. I was um, going to say, I'm glad you started off like that because your other question about how, what are the misconceptions about the church outside of the church and in the church, I believe they're kind of the same, and I would say hypocrisy, meaning I think that the world looks at the church and sees a bunch of hypocrites, but then I think also the church often feels like to be a hypocrite is a birthright of a Christian, and we just slide in on grace. And so, so if so if so if we if we have a brand of Christianity that makes room for I don't have to live according to God's word and His standard that I don't have to be holy that um, I can just jump up and ask for forgiveness tomorrow like we're very cavalier with God and we're very um, yeah it's just we actually become the thing that the world accuses us of but we actually think it's a part of what it means to be a Christian, that we have no deep sensitivity or fear of God. Like, so I do think we have to get back to fearing God. And then I would say, um, secondly, I do think something that the church can begin to do is to count the cost. I think one of the reasons why our branding is sometimes off, there's sometimes a presumption that people just don't know, that there's an ignorance gap. And yes, there is that at times, but I think a lot of us know enough that we're often just afraid to live out. And so we don't count the cost that to be an unapologetic Christian at work, at home, in the community, even among your own church friends, is going to cost you something. It'll cost you friendship, it'll cost you followers, it'll cost you outings, you won't, it'll cost you invitations. Um, but we come from a history and a legacy where the church gloried in it even costing their very lives. And so I do think that a part of how we'll get our witness back, how we'll get our, our legs up under us, is for us to be okay with what it really means to pick up your cross and follow Christ. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah. Go ahead. Just quickly, I think not being afraid to engage and to have loving, tactful, corrective conversations, um, whether that's face-to-face -face and you meet somebody who's not a believer and they believe things about the church that aren't true and just lovingly saying like hey you know i'm, I'm a part of that i can kind of give you a better perspective on it um, even on social media sometimes even things that we post as the church sometimes people will come and they'll have something that is counter truth to say as a pushback um, it's 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 okay for us to say hey let me just without trying to getting a shouting match with you, here's, here's the truth. And that way we're not um, forfeiting the opportunity to frame the conversation around truth. Amen. I think one of the things as we close that we um, have to apply is repentance. The impact of just going to someone and saying, you know what, I'm a believer in Christ and I believe that there have been ways that I have misrepresented him to you. And so um, the reason why I'm, you, this may seem strange to you, but the reason why I'm asking for forgiveness is because my role is to properly represent him. And I believe that I shaped a bad perception of Jesus by the way I've been towards you. 
you know. And so um, going out there and doing that and having, I know some churches set up a repentance booth, you know, in like a park and stuff like that. But just ways in which we can just even individually as well as corporately do that. And I want this whole idea of rebranding to become a part of an ongoing culture uh, as a church that we have uh, for good, where we're always trying to make sure that people understand and perceive um, us and, and, and God really, really well. And I believe that this is a mechanism that's going to open up. And I don't say this like in a sensationalist way, I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, a triumphalist way, but I believe it's going to open up the door for revival. Um, and, 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 but, but, but literally rebranding starts with dying. Like, like there is, there, I mean, dying always changes something. Like nothing in the Bible was changed without death. Like look, look at every corner of scripture. And even now we're called still to do what? Die. Die is our brand. But guess what? Resurrections is too. Somebody ought to hear me. And so God always is trying to create new life somewhere. And so as we walk as believers, we can, we, can, we can deal with what it means to lay down our rights or deal with something difficult. Why? Because we have a resurrecting God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father God, we are excited to be representatives. And we are, uh, since renewal and representing you. And so God, I just pray that, Lord God, we would take on the necessary um, attributes that you've already given us to walk in gospel commitment to you. Lord, I pray that we as your church um, would experience you personally. Also pray that you, we would experience you corporately and that we would, we would move for the world to experience you practically through your people in Jesus name. We pray. Everybody agree with that saying? Amen, 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 amen. Let's Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual emphasis.